Hello and welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name is Kai. I'm studying a PhD in physics. Today I'm joined by Kate. Kate, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. I'm. I just realised I, I can't really say I'm doing a PhD yet because I haven't technically started. But I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm. Just, I'm essentially yeah, a PhD student. Um, <laughs> you know, I finished my masters. I'm taking a little break, but I am a neuroscientist. I am studying neuroscience. I will be starting my PhD very soon um, in neuroscience. So that's exciting. Um, very exciting. And missing from today's show, if you're a regular listener to the show, you might be like, oh, there's normally a third host. Well, Ailish has ditched us this afternoon, which is quite sad. Um, but that's okay, because we're going we're gonna to fill the spot with a, with a special guest later. Um, you'll hear all about it. Keep listening if you want to find out. Um, but before we get to that, Kai, I have a question for you. Okay, hit me. If you could go to space, like to outer space... Mm. Would you like if the opportunity yes. present? Yes, really. Yes. No way. See, I'm. I'm. I was hoping you would say that because I'm on the team. Heck no. Heck no. I want really? none of that. I want none of that. I. I get scared on airplanes. Can you imagine me on a rocket ship? <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Like that's know. that's taking it to the next like extreme. That I'm just like, you know what. I, I will happily stay on Earth and do science down here to, you know. But no, you would. Would you go to Mars if there was a mission going to Mars? Like a one-way ticket, mm, say. A one-way ticket. Mm. That, um, that's that's mm. a different story. It I have is, to think long it? and hard about that one. Mm-hmm. You've got three um, seconds. If it was a two-way ticket, like, uh-huh. definitely yes. Yeah. But one-way, yeah, we'd, we'd see. Are you not concerned about... You know what space would do to you slash the potential dangers of being stuck up there. I don't know. You know things exploding, death. Yeah, but like death happens on Earth. That's that's a fair point. <laughs> that's a fair point. Um, I mean, you said you're scared of aeroplanes, but like, okay, sure, space travel is probably significantly more dangerous than aeroplanes, and probably, and we we say things like cars are more dangerous than aeroplanes, and that's and that's true statistically. Mm, but like, I mean, I ride a motorbike, so I can't really talk about not putting myself <laughs> in a dangerous vehicle situation. But I'm in control of the motorbike. I'm not in control of the aeroplane or the. Maybe if I was flying the spaceship, maybe that would be different. Okay. I don't mm. know. But maybe you could become a pilot. Maybe maybe I should definitely not do that. That is not a <laughs> career choice for someone who has a phobia of being in the air. Uh, <laughs> but maybe it would solve all my problems. But mm. yeah, the reason I am asking you about space is because, well, you, you're prob- hopefully you're aware. If you're not aware, this is awkward. Uh, that our our topic for today's show is going to be out of space, and and Woo, we're going to be talking exciting. all things space, which is super fun. Um, yeah, definitely. I cannot wait. Mm, but before we get there, we gotta we gotta we start with some news. Go through the news, yeah. So, my news is actually kind of related to space, oh, or almost, almost. It's not almost. quite there. Okay. So Upper we're, we're talking about planes. Or... Yeah, no, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and we're talking about planes, and you know, the maximum altitude of planes is about like twenty to thirty kilometers, depending on the type of plane it is. Okay. You know, that's that's sort of like where they top out. Much they can't further go off the ground than any human should be at any given time. But <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. Um. 
Yeah, because the atmosphere just gets thinner and thinner. The planes, their wings don't generate enough lift. Mm-hmm. Um, Makes sense. But there are ways of getting higher and balloons are much better than planes are getting higher oh, as really? they just sort of just float up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the highest, like the record for the highest balloon flight mm-hmm. was 53 kilometers. Oh, wow. Which Like is, a hot yeah. air balloon kind of balloon. Yeah, exactly. That's and- terrifying. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, thank you. Yeah, and when you get to that sort of altitude, it, it basically looks like space. Like most of the air is below you now. Mm. So can you breathe which- if you're in like the basket of a hot air balloon? Can you breathe? No. So no, how did they can't. get, or was there nobody in the balloon when they got no, it up there? No, it's like an enclosed basket, like, yeah, like okay, think of like right. a space capsule yeah, yeah, hanging yeah. from a balloon type thing. That makes sense. Thing. I was picturing just like a free hanging basket, and I was like, in but there's nothing to breathe. That sounds no. like a big pass. No, thank yeah, you. that would be a very bad idea if you tried to breathe at that <laughs> yeah, Full disclaimer, radio silence does not condone taking a naked basket <laughs> up 50 kilometers above the In fact, uh, at that sort of altitude, the pressure is so low that the boiling point of water is actually lower than body temperature <gasps> so you would boil your blood you would, boil. would boil oh your blood would, well, that's... not necessarily but your blood because that's still inside you yeah, but like true, your, true, true. your saliva and like mm, you, your sweat you know sweat every yeah any liquid water on, the outside of your body. on your your tears yep and yeah so don't go outside your hotty balloon at that at that sort of altitude yeah i wasn't planning on it but thanks <laughs> yeah and then so that's 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 quite high. But then satellites, are the lowest that a satellite can orbit is about 150 kilometers. Okay. So there's actually this big gap between 50 and 150 kilometers mm. where you can't really fly. Right. And yeah, yeah, the yeah. only way that they can actually, you can actually be in this area is as you're in like a rocket or something that mm-hmm. passes through. Mm-hmm. But that can only be there for like as a couple of minutes. As transient as it goes. As, yeah. yeah. So what this means is it's actually really hard to get any observations on this part of the atmosphere because the only way they can do it is by shooting rockets through it and measuring it on the way. Mm. But as as we said, that's, you know, only there for a couple of minutes. You can't stick around and take lots of measurements. Mm. Inconvenient. Yeah, very inconvenient. That there's some scientists at the University of Pennsylvania who have developed a technology that could be used to achieve sustained flight in this particular part of the atmosphere, which is called the mesosphere. Oh, And the way they do it is is really cool. It uses what's called the photophoretic effect. Mm-hmm. Now, what this is, is basically that if you have, say, an object that's got a hotter temperature on one side than the other, mm-hmm. that the gas will heat up on the hot side and bounce off faster than on the cold side. Mm. And because the gas particles are bouncing off faster, they're pushing more energy onto that object yep. from the hot side. Yeah. So it can get a, a force push. So on it can it. have kind of lift-ish. Exactly. Yeah. So right. they've, they've developed these discs that are about a centimeter in diameter and only half a micron thick, and they've put carbon nanotubes on one side, uh-huh. and these carbon nanotubes absorb light uh-huh. and transfer heat to the air much better on that side than on the other side. Right. So, and they've developed these discs that actually in sunlight, mm-hmm. they generate enough lift that they can levitate in that's the upper atmosphere if you had these discs. That's so cool. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love science. Oh, I know. It's, yeah, so cool. So they're, they're thinking that 
if you get enough of these discs and sort of string them together, you could you could make like a levitating, you know, like a hoverboard. It's kind of like a but, balloon. It's like a hoverboard, yeah. And, <laughs> but and a hoverboard that hovers a hundred kilometers above the earth. Above the earth, yeah. yeah. Cool, 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 so, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, um, I'm just amazed that this works, and, yeah. and I can't I can't wait to see them them put it into action because this would be very cool, and yeah, would basically allow scientists to study a part of the atmosphere that's been really hard to get any data on so far mm. and is is you know the most poorly understood part of the atmosphere yeah so I think kind of is... like a missing link in our understanding exactly and yeah who knows what that could un- unlock for understanding the earth and the climate and all sorts of different things that we might want to know yeah. about no that is really cool that is super super yeah. cool so kate what news have you got so my news in true Kate fashion, is about the brain. Um, of course, it is. A new pub, a new published, a new study published in the Journal of Neuroscience um, that looks at scanning people's brains and using the information that you get from scanning someone's brain to predict changes in the stock market. Right. So hear me okay. out. If you could predict stock market changes, like when the stock market is going to, you know, when certain stock prices are going to increase or when they're going to flip and change direction, mm-hmm. you know, that's what everyone ultimately wants. Well, I say everyone. You could make that's lots what of money. You could make, you know, a hot dollar or two. And that's the thing that, you know, we, we really can't predict very well at the moment. And mm-hmm. in fact, the scientists in this study, they, they tried to predict the stock prices or they used it as a control based on, you know, previous performance of the stocks or even the participants that they got in this study. They got them yep. to, you know, look at data from, I think it was, yeah, 2015 stock prices. So like real stock data. And they got them yep. to look and they got them to sort of predict whether... Uh, you know, something was going to increase or decrease or make, you know, choices as though they were in an actual, you know, stock Mm -hmm. buying session. It's not what it's called. Um, (laughs) But, you know, they simulated that whole thing. And and essentially what they found is when they scanned the brains using fMRI, which just measures activity by measuring blood flow. And if there's more blood flow to a particular region of the brain, we say that that means there's more activity there because obviously more blood, more nutrients the brain's, you know, doing something. And they scanned the brain. They scanned two particular areas of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, which is well, well associated with reward and um, encoding rewarding things, and the anterior insula, which is well associated with risk and avoiding risky behaviours or engaging in risky behaviours. And they had a look at the activity in these two regions of the brain, and they were able to super accurately predict what the stock market was going to do based on what the participants' brains were doing before, like in that, in those moments before they made the decisions about what they were going to do with the stock market. So they, they looked at the stock prices, they looked at these regions of the brain, and they found that very, very accurately, activity in the nucleus accumbens would forecast when the stock was going to increase the next day, and activity in the anterior insula forecast when the stock was going to flip or change direction in mm. its um, value. And they compared this to, yeah, looking at historical data and trying to predict it based off that, or even just asking the people, hey, like, you know, what would you invest in? And they go, okay, consciously, I want to invest in this because this seems like a good decision. But- their conscious decision was less accurate than the brain activity. 
So that suggests that there's like potentially like hidden information. Like we're better at subconsciously predicting stuff than we even consciously realize. Like it's so wild. And so they previously, (laughs) they previously used this technology to predict like when a video is going to go viral um, or Mm. crowdfunding campaigns, which ones crowdfunding campaigns were going to receive funding. This is the same lab uh, at Stanford University in America. Um, And then they were like, okay, let's pick something a little bit more complex than stock prices. Uh, sorry, stock prices are the complex one. More more complex than whether a video is going to go viral or whether a crowdfunding thing yep. is going to get funding. And they use the stock market, and and it worked. And yeah, this is a brand brand new study that just came out, and I just uh, I want to see where this goes, and I want to see how you know, because obviously there, there's a bit more to it, and this is historical data, and we don't know, you know. Mm. But uh, still, I read this paper, and I was just like, this is insanely cool this yeah, is insanely that is insane. cool so they shouldn't have told anyone they should have just kept the secret to themselves yeah and like, you know make lots of money you look you say they should have <laughs> but uh cough ethics cough like don't don't be a bad scientist <laughs> don't be an evil scientist share your information mm. with the world but then again not everyone has an fmri machine handy to just kind of True. you know use but this. i don't know if you're if you're the sort of person who's like let's make lots of money money on the stock market maybe you're gonna invest in look the FMRI machine. true and maybe if you if you win big win big on the stocks is that what is that the terminology you can tell that i'm in finance um <laughs> then then maybe you would use your your uh funds to win you more money i don't know yeah but yeah yeah very very cool mm. Well, we've got some more cool science coming up this episode all about space. To kick us off, here is Drops of Jupiter by Train. You're listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. That was Drops of Jupiter by Train. And today we're talking all about space. Kate, what have you got? So, I'm going to talk about space, but I also want to talk about brains again. Because I'm me and brains are cool. (laughs) But I want to talk about what happens to brains in space, as in the the brains of astronauts, that is. So we kind of know that going to space is going to do some stuff to the human body, right? There's there's no gravity and, like, it's well documented that stuff that – stuff like – you know, bone density or muscle mass, uh, you know, all those sorts of things are going to deteriorate in astronauts um, who spend a long time in microgravity kind of situations. Um, But space also has an effect on the brain and other parts of the body that aren't your muscles and bones. Mm. So pretty much the reason for this is that our bodies are are well adapted to live in the in the amount of gravity that we have on Earth. Like, you know, we, we've evolved to function under this level of gravity. So in mm. your body, there's there's an awful lot of fluid, right? There's there's blood, there's cerebral spinal fluid, there's there's all sorts of things. Um and yep. there's a lot of pumping fluid against gravity, right? Because otherwise all right. of your blood would like pull in your feet and your feet would swell mm. up and whatever. But, you know, based because of our heart pumping blood, um, our capillaries being really thin and capillary action sucking blood up against gravity, you know, there's a lot of forces acting to counteract the gravity. So when astronauts first reach space and their bodies haven't had time to kind of adjust to this new level of gravity, what we find happens is that all of this fluid is still pulled up against against gravity, 
but much more than it should be. So you can look at photos. There are photos of astronauts at the International Space Station, like just after they've gotten there. And their, their faces mm. are really puffy compared to like you look at their headshots of like their astronaut, professional astronaut headshots from being on <laughs> Earth compared to photos that are taken as soon as they get to the International Space Station. And their faces, are, it's really funny. I highly suggest you Google it. Um, and, you know, and that's because because of this gravity effect. And that, that tends to go like the swelling will go down after a few days and it, it takes, you know, yeah, it takes a few ti- uh, days, but that generally sorts itself out in terms of blood and whatnot, except for your cerebral spinal fluid. So your cerebral spinal fluid is essentially, it's the fluid that's in your, as, as suggested, in, in your brain and in your spinal cord or surrounding your brain, sorry, and surrounding your spinal yep. cord, kind of... F- Number one, providing a bit of cushioning and a bit of protection, but also providing nutrients and removing waste. So it's kind of it's kind of doing what the blood does in other parts of the body, but around the brain and around mm-hmm. the spinal cord. It does not adjust to the lack of gravity. And there are a lot of studies showing that instead of kind of distributing itself normally, what happens is that your cerebral spinal fluid will actually pull in the brain kind of under the cerebellum. So the cerebellum, like, you know, you've seen a picture of the brain. You've got the big main chunky bit of the brain at the top. And then you've got this little bulb down the bottom. And it, you know, Mm -hmm. it does a lot of things. But one of the main things is kind of balance. It helps with and... Yeah, the blood, the cerebral spinal fluid, sorry, tends to like kind of pull under that and and compress the brain and compress the eyeballs. And so yeah. what this means is a couple things happen. So there was there was a 2019 study, a pretty recent study that that looked at the brains of 15 astronauts both before and after spaceflight. So seven of these astronauts had spent it was 30 days or more in a space shuttle. And then the other eight of these astronauts had been on the International Space Station for at least six months. And what this study found is that, yeah, the pulling of the cerebral spinal fluid seemed to increase pressure within the brain. So it can like squeeze and misshape both the brain and the eyeballs. And it causes something that scientists have called space flight associated neuroocular syndrome or SANS is the is the <laughs> SANS. And there's nothing comical about this SANS. That was a terrible joke and I hate myself. Um, <laughs> but essentially we don't completely understand how these changes are going to sort of affect astronauts on really, really long-term journeys Mm. aka if we were to send someone to mars right we don't we don't really know what effect this is going to have um but we do know that based on the astronauts that they looked at in this study vision problems are one thing as it kind of compresses Mm. the ocular nerve and misshapes the eyeballs especially in nearsighted vision gets um impaired and then also balance possibly to do with the fact that it's under the cerebellum, but also possibly speculated it's to do with the fact that it's compressing the whole brain and it's potentially interrupting signaling between other parts of the brain. And that could be what's affecting it. But there are definitely neurological effects that happen based on this. But what's really interesting is that the changes that they saw were more severe in the brains of the astronauts who had been in microgravity for a shorter period of time. So the astronauts that had been up in okay. space for long uh, for longer had actually sorted to like started to go back to normal, and so that suggests that maybe maybe on a long haul flight, say to Mars, um, 
we might be okay because like right. our blood kind of sorts itself out and adjusts to the gravity. Maybe the cerebral spinal fluid will get there. It just needs even longer. A little bit of time. Yeah, because the astronauts that had been up there for less time had less less squishing of their brain, less pressure in their brain. But it's still it was still there and it's still not great. So that's one thing mm. that can happen to the brain in outer space. Another thing, another factor is radiation. So in space... Yep radiation exists so basically like when we're on earth most of the radiation from deep space doesn't doesn't affect us because earth has this magnetic you know magnetic field around it that the the radiation just kind of glances off and leaves us alone which is nifty and the international space station it does have some like radiation shielding built into it using like i think it's hydrogen is really good at reflecting radiation or boron and so they they have built some shielding but it's not the greatest but the nifty thing about the international space station is that because it's in low earth orbit so it's not super far away it's actually close enough to the earth's magnetic field that the earth's magnetic field does provide some protection against radiation for those astronauts but what once again i keep bringing out this whole mars what if we're going to a you know on a on a deep space mission into Mars, and that's just because that's that's something that you know is actually planned for the. I mean, not not near not future, but future. it is something that you know scientists have been thinking about. Like, can we go to Mars? And there's lots of things you've got to consider if we're going to send people to Mars. What's going to happen mm. to them if you send them out into deep space? And radiation is, yeah, a huge part of that. And so, like. Mm-hmm. To understand what radiation is going to do to the brain, you kind of need to understand what what this radiation is. And what it is, is essentially it's just atoms that lose their electrons as they fly through space at, like, nearly the speed of light, essentially. So they're just, yeah. like, microscopic bullets tearing tearing through space. And they, they're going to tear through your body. They're going to tear through your brain tissue. They don't care that you're in the way. They're going to, you yeah. know. And, and what this does is this causes microscopic tears within the brain tissue, which, as one might imagine, not ideal, not what you want. Um, (laughs) Now, fortunately, we haven't sent any astronauts as guinea pigs out into deep space to see what happens to their brains, but scientists have tested this on mice. So what they did is they, yeah, they got mice and they exposed them to different levels of radiation to sort of simulate what would happen in Mm -hmm. if you sent a human being out into deep space and what they found is that these microscopic tears in the brain tissue actually led to the development of plaques which is essentially clumps of protein amyloid beta plaques which if you've heard of you know amyloid beta plaques before it's maybe ringing a bell in your brain because that's what we see in patients with dementia and alzheimer's it's a very very common feature of of brains with alzheimer's is these amyloid beta plaques and radiation low levels of radiation similar to what you would see in space is causing this same thing to mice brains wow yeah and they tested it and they tested these same mice on like memory tasks and they performed worse on memory tasks than the yeah. the ones that didn't receive the radiation so yeah it it suggests that that sending someone out into deep space radiation could increase their chances of developing alzheimer's um or other forms of dementia so before we can go sending people out on these 
deep space sort of missions, we probably need to figure out some more efficient, more effective radiation shielding for our space vessels or our space suits or whatever yeah, infrastructure definitely. we build on Mars when we have set up our colony there. Um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe Mars itself actually has a level of protection, but on the journey to and from, you yeah. you you need some level of protection, um, which. Yeah, another another thing that was really interesting about it though is the fact that the lower levels of radiation actually caused more damage than the really high levels of radiation. Um, mm. But unfortunately, the lower levels that they exposed them to in the study are equivalent to what humans would be experiencing out mm, in space. Right. So, yeah. And once again, this is this is just in rodents. We haven't tested this in human brains yet. But based on what we know about how well rodent models translate to human models in terms of amyloid mm. beta plaques and Alzheimer's, this is this is a pretty accurate model. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's the other big. I guess the third thing that's worth noting that's kind of brain related is sleep and circadian rhythms. So obviously yes. As like and it's well documented astronauts don't get as much sleep as they should even if there's, you know, 8 hours a day allocated to sleep, they'll spend less than that sleeping because the way we know how to sleep or when to sleep is to do with circadian rhythms which is to do with the changing of the frequency of light. So like, you know, blue light's really strong in the morning and that kind of stimulates Oh, sorry, it actually, it suppresses melatonin, which is like a sleep hormone. Mm. And so that's why you want to avoid blue light later at night, because it'll help you sleep, blah, blah, blah. You don't have that 24-hour sunrise-sunset cycle when you're in yeah. space. And so, yeah, circadian rhythms get way out of whack. But they've, they've come away to solving this by installing LED lights in the International Space Station that replicate a pretty much a 24-hour cycle in terms of... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, lights. So that one's less of a problem. Like, we've come up with solutions to that one already, but it's still it's yeah. still worth noting that it's a thing. So, yeah, a lot of work to do before we can send people to Mars, but still. Yeah, it's it's good to understand all these effects mm. because mm. If, if we didn't, then we, then we wouldn't know. We would find out the them. hard way, and that wouldn't yeah. be fun for anyone. <laughs> that would not be fun for anyone. Mm. All right, let's take it to another song. We've got Alex the Astronaut, I Think You're Great. And after this, we're going to have a guest. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. And that was I Think You're Great by Alex the Astronaut, fitting artist for today's space-themed show. Also fitting in with today's Space Theme Show, we have a guest on this episode. I'm super excited to introduce. We've got Benji, Benji the Astronomer. <laughs> After Alex the Astronaut, we've got Benji the Astronomer coming on to talk to us about some astronomy stuff, as far as I'm aware. Is that correct, Ben? <laughs> That's right. I like to consider myself an equal to ask Alex the Astronaut, too. Um. Yeah, yeah. I would say that you are. Um, and so Ben is a PhD student here at the University of Melbourne, studying some cool stuff. I don't know. Do you do you want to quickly tell us what your what your project is vaguely related right. to? So I'm only a baby PhD project, so my, it could be could be anything yet. We still don't know. But um, <laughs> yeah, yep. at the moment, I'm looking at um, spatial statistics in galaxies. Um, but today, I don't really want to talk about that because I've been doing it all week. <laughs> um, instead, yeah, I'm going to be talking fair. about something related to a project that I used to do um, mm -hmm. a couple of back at the start of my masters, um, which mm -hmm. is to do with cubesats. Um, CubeSats. So tiny satellites. How tiny is tiny? Like, when you say tiny, are we talking, like, tiny? I would say tiny. A CubeSats, they can come in a 
bunch of different sizes. They're kind of like um, modular, sort of like really small telescopes um, mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, but the smallest ones you get are 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. Oh, wow. Like that small. Yeah, adorable. That is adorable. And they're, and, and they're useful. Yeah. The reason you want a CubeSat is like, mm -hmm. um, it's sort of the smallest you can make a satellite while still having it useful. Okay. So to be a satellite, no matter what, you need a couple of things. You need a power source, you need some mm -hmm. computing. So you probably need like a solar panel or something in there. Mm -hmm. um, you need some kind of like radiation as well. If you're like producing all this energy from computation, you need to get rid of that. You need to mm -hmm. cool yourself. And so once you kind of like put in all of that sort of stuff in there, you kind of only have like a little bit of room left over. But we're getting better at it. Mm -hmm. So CubeSats were sort of started, I think around early 2000s, um, the first ones were launched. And they were mostly okay. like tech demos. But you can actually do some pretty cool stuff with them nowadays. Especially mm -hmm. like as technology gets better, everything kind of gets smaller. Mm -hmm. Like if you consider going from like the computers we had in the 1990s um, down mm -hmm. to like the computers we have now, which are the size of the iPhone, all of that miniaturization technology that's kind of like invented by the tech companies sort of trickles its way down and becomes used in all sorts of science. Yeah, right. So the ones in the early 2000s were not 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters? Oh, or no, was they, that... they were. They were the first ones. Yeah, wow. They were the first ones that were that size. Yeah. Um, so nowadays you can get even smaller ones that are sort of like 5 centimeters by 5 centimeters by 5 centimeters. But oh, my god. we gosh. don't even want to talk about them. <laughs> don't we, though? That's cool. <laughs> no, but fair. Okay, well, what, what can you do with them? What... How are they useful over, you know, standard sized satellites? Right. So the main advantage of CubeSats is kind of a couple of things. One of them is they're smaller. Yes. Um, <laughs> and basically, if you want to get something into space, um, there's certain things you can only do from space. So if you wanted to do, I don't know, infrared astronomy, you can't do that from Earth because Earth has an atmosphere. The atmosphere yeah. glows in infrared. Yeah. Um, so if you want to do anything like that, you need to go to space. Yeah. There's other things too. Like I've got some examples of things that CubeSats have done. There was one that was done. It had a little uh, lab where they saw if E. coli could survive in space. So it oh, was cool. a self-contained three units. So three 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters, kind of like in a row. Yep. So you can see it as kind of basically like a long tissue box sort of shape. Yep. Um, and a bunch of E. coli lived on that. I like to think of it as kind of like an E. coli mothership. Oh my um, gosh, yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Like a little, that's cool. Yeah, a tiny space station for tiny microbes. Um, <laughs> the International Space Station, the V. coli. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'm and here for they it. they survived, and that was like NASA's first uh, CubeSat oh, little experiment. No showed that it works, showed that things yeah. can happen. Um, that's so, yeah. cool. That's worth cool. Yeah, but there's other things too. So we've had CubeSats that have been designed for like early detection of earthquakes. Oh, what? How yeah, does that so work? like looking for um, anomalies in the Earth's magnetic field. Um, and from that, you can try to sense if there's an earthquake oh, no. about to happen. That's cool. We've had, there was one I had, I, I have like a list of them here. Um, mm. There's one that was used to just um, track reindeer. Um, oh. That was a Norwegian um, CubeSat. <laughs> what? Yeah, so you can use CubeSats for like precision agriculture as well. If you want to look at like how much heat is getting lost by your field of crops or things like that. That's cool. So like still from space? From space, yeah. So space-based and like things like uh, earth science as well. So there's a project that was a few years old um, where they got um, a bunch of unis around the world to design their own CubeSats. Mm -hmm. um, with the intention of measuring the temperature of kind of like the bottom part of space. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of like closer to the Earth and also like measuring the temperatures on re-entry. So they've planned yeah, for like things like okay. spacecraft re-entering. 
That's um, cool. But yeah, the main advantage of CubeSats is that they're small. Mm -hmm. And because they're small, they're cheap. And mm. also because they're all the same shape, it's really convenient for um, space companies if they want to launch a bunch of them. Yeah. Because they don't have to worry about putting all of these boxes in the same sort of like things and like all of these different shaped satellites that all want to go up. Everything's yeah. these kind of like regular. It just like fits cubes. in. It's like Tetris, but easy level Tetris because yeah. I think it's like cubes. The way I sort of think of it is it's sort of like, um, you know how all mobile phones nowadays come with the same charger and it just makes everything yeah. so much more convenient. Or if you've yeah, got a USB-C like charger and you can charge both your laptop and your phone with the same charger. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got the same kind of shape for every all of these satellites. Yeah. Um, and what that means is that there's kind of this new revolution. This cost of sending things to space keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper every mm -hmm. year um, with Mr. Musk making recyclable rockets. That's going to go down even cheaper still. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then also, like, once you've got these rideshare technologies... Basically, you can be like, hey, I've got a project that I want to put in a um, sun-synchronous polar orbit. I don't know, low Earth orbit. Pretty mm -hmm. popular one. A lot of people want to go there. So you can find, you know, someone who will take you there and they've got slots for maybe like 5 or 6 or 10 or 30 or 80 CubeSats. You can all come up together and you just right, split the cost between you. Right, and you just uber-pull you. You your, uber your satellites into space, yeah. Fuck, that's cool. So maybe, yeah, I want to look at um, gamma-ray bursts. I want to launch my detector over here. I've got some Norwegian guy next to me who wants to, like, study reindeer. I've got yeah. some guy from San Diego as well who wants to look at earthquakes. And we can all take uh -huh. the same rocket up, spread out in space, and we'll be fine. Oh, that's so nifty. Yeah. I love that. That's so cool. So what did you said that you worked on some of these before. What did you do when you were using CubeSats? Right. So um, there's a couple of CubeSat projects that are being developed at Melbourne Uni right now. Mm -hmm. um, I worked on one of the early ones called Skyhopper, which was a mm. small, um, so 12 unit CubeSat. So 20 by 20 by 30 centimeters. So uh -huh. 12 little 10 centimeter cubes. Yep. Um, and his job was to look at um, gamma ray burst afterglows. Um, okay. But at the moment, I'm also working on a couple of side projects at the moment. Um, one of them is involved in um, detecting gamma ray bursts. So... Um, his name is Spirit. He's Spirit. been funded by the um, Australian Space Agency. Um, uh -huh. He's one of their first projects that they've actually funded. Um, and he's going to be launched in 2022. Oh, that's cool. And so his job is going to be working with a collection of Italian uh, nanosatellites as well. Okay. Um, and so they can all work together to, like, detect X-rays. And so basically what you've got is you've got, a, like, a lot of satellites that are kind of, like, spread out mm -hmm. all looking at the same sort of source. Um, by mm -hmm. the time delays, you can figure out the distance of the source and you can also figure uh, out where it is on the sky yeah. as well. Right. Oh, that's so smart. I love that. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah. All right. There is one more CubeSat that I want to tell you about. Do it. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's very cool. Um, so we have actually had, as of 2018, the first pair of CubeSats go to Mars. <gasps> cool. So, yeah, these were Marco, Mars Cube 1. Um, there uh -huh. was two of them. Um, the only reason there's two of them is in case one breaks. Okay. Um, so, yeah. like, if you're a private startup space company or a university, you can make CubeSats. You couldn't usually make, like, a massive, like, a Hubble-sized telescope. Those projects are pretty much only available for governments. Yeah. But at the same token, if you're a government, um, spending money on a CubeSat is like buying a couple of extra screws at a hardware store. Yeah. Um, if you're going like to buy nothing. one, you may as well buy two. Yeah, so they no, sent two yeah. up there, and their job is to kind of, like, help rovers communicate to Earth um, from Mars. 
Oh, cool. So they're basically like the Mars's first version of like satellite internet. No way. Yeah. That's cool. So it just, yeah, helps get the signal back, back to from Earth, yeah. the rovers. Nifty. Really cool. So there's just like tiny little cubes everywhere in space. Mars, yeah. So right Nira. now we've got over um, 1,200 CubeSats have been launched. Oh, no way. And they're all well, still up there? Or is that how many is up there or just how many have been launched? That's how many have been launched without failing. Um, mm, okay, without failing. <laughs> I don't know how many are still up there today. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, when you're talking about responsible use of space, generally, like, once your thing's done the job that you want it to do, uh, yeah. you kind of have to get it down. You don't want to leave too much rubbish up there. It could cause yeah. accidents or problems. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's a topic for a whole nother show, I reckon. A, <laughs> that's We'll have to get you back. Um, well, that's really cool, and that's some really exciting stuff. Thank you for coming on and, and chatting to us today about all of that. No worries. Yeah, anytime you want to hear about space, give me a call. Yeah, we will, we will. Um, and with that, we're going to take us right into our next song, which is going to be Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, and that was Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Welcome back to our space episode where we're talking all things outer space. Kai, finish us off. What have you got for us? All right. So we check the weather all the time, but Mm -hmm. have you ever checked the space weather? I can't say I have. Well, you should because it's interesting. How do I check it? Is there an app I can download for this? Well, believe it or not, it's on the Bureau of Meteorology website. No, really? Yeah, there's there's a link to space weather. It's kind of hard to find. It's like down the bottom somewhere, but like it's there. So Okay, well, after the show, I'm going to have to go check this out. Yeah, so, all right. Well, let's let's talk about like what is space weather. And Please. I didn't even know there was weather in space, if I'm being completely honest with you. <laughs> yeah, so just like normal weather, space weather is is driven a lot by the sun. Mm-hmm. And, and then the Probably the main thing or component of space weather is solar wind. And Mm. you kind of touched on this a little bit in your segment, Kate, is like the radiation in space. A lot of that is actually solar wind. So you've got high energy particles like Mm -hmm. protons and other radiation um, ejected from the sun. Mm -hmm. And this is traveling away from the sun, like traveling out through space, kind of like wind. I mean, it's not really like wind. Like there's far fewer particles, you know, in a certain volume than in actual air because space Mm -hmm. is is pretty much a vacuum. But it can have a very big impact here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So, again, Kate, you mentioned the Earth has a magnetic field and does a pretty good job of protecting us from radiation. Mm -hmm. And some of the ways that it does this is sort of directs the radiation away from Earth, but it does also kind of direct it along the field lines of the magnetic field, and that takes it towards the poles of the Earth. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So it kind of like directs the radiation towards the poles where they come down. The radiation then is directed towards the surface of the Earth. Mm -hmm. And this is what causes the aurora. So, you know, like the northern lights. Yeah, right. Is is actually caused by space weather. No way. So that's just like solar wind that has been magnetically... Deflected and and enters the atmosphere and and as it enters the atmosphere, it like energizes the 
air particles and yeah. they give off light and give these spectacular displays huh. of, of light that is like the northern lights or southern lights if you're at the South Pole. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. And and that's that's a fairly like benign aspect of space weather. There's also more like dramatic things. One which just sounds dramatic is called a geomagnetic storm. <laughs> that does sound dramatic. And and this is what happens when like there's a huge amount of solar wind that is is disrupting the Earth's magnetic field and like causing it to sort of wobble around a bit as there's so much energy is like smashing into it and, and mm-hmm. can upset the Earth's magnetic field a little bit. Yeah, and, right. And and the reason the Earth's magnetic field is is important is because it protects like it protects the Earth and and you said, you know, it extends into space a little bit so it can protect the satellites that are orbiting the Earth. Mm-hmm. Now, and the International Space Station. And the International Space Station with, with the astronauts on it. Yeah, it's, it's not the same as being on the surface, but it is actually much better than being out in, in sort of away Deep from space. the magnetic field. Mm. Yeah. But the it's not just astronauts that need to be worried about the effects from solar wind and radiation because satellites also have sensitive electronics on them that can be damaged by these this radiation mm. or solar wind. So... Um, you know, in a in a electronic circuit, like there's lots of switches that are sort of like in the one or zero state on or off. And in things like memory in those satellites, if you get radiation in just the right spot, it can flick one of those switches and scramble the memory. Oh, that's really not convenient. Not convenient at all. Um, <laughs> it could also cause like power surges, which could just fry the satellite. Mm. And, you know, this is this is really bad. Uh, another rude. reason it's it's also bad for satellites is... When there's intense periods of solar wind, because the Earth's atmosphere is sort of absorbing more energy from all of these particles smashing into it, the mm. upper layers of the atmosphere actually heat up and expand. So the atmosphere like goes further out into space. Huh. And some satellites in low Earth orbit, mm. because the atmosphere expands, they start experiencing more drag and right. it can slow them down and potentially cause them to deorbit or come back to earth faster. Oh, no way. It's 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 probably a bit dramatic to think that like all of a sudden they just fall out of the sky, but Yeah, that's what I was imagining. <laughs> the sky it's, is it, falling <laughs> and it's just one of the not, little CubeSats crashing down. Yeah. Um not quite that dramatic. They sort of would just like maybe come down a little bit earlier, but it's it's still mm-hmm. not great because it's still you need not to what then, you want. No, you need to take action to like correct for that. Mm. But yeah, we also already know that the radiation in space travel, like going to Mars, is is bad for you. But mm. it's actually also relevant in air travel, like still here on Earth. Interesting. And that's because... Told the you airplanes up- were bad. <laughs> the higher up you go in the atmosphere, the more radiation you're exposed to. Because yeah. the atmosphere is going gonna, is gonna to shield you pretty well. So even just going up like, you know, 12 kilometers or so where commercial planes fly... Like, there's a significantly increased radiation exposure. And mm. this is actually an occupational hazard for pilots. Yeah. I wonder if there's more Alzheimer's in pilots. This that is, would, be, would be interesting. Yeah, it would. I wonder. It would. So, um, yeah, pilots need to be wary of how much radiation they're receiving, you know, in a year so that they can make sure that they minimize their risks of maybe developing Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. But... Being able to uh, measure the space weather is something really important for these sorts of industries because 
if you know there's going to be a period of intense solar activity and lots of solar wind, meaning more radiation, then sometimes the airlines actually adjust their routes to make sure that they're not flying too close to the poles where there's more radiation and they're going to be protecting the pilots and to a lesser extent the passengers um like mm. the passengers aren't as, aren't as concerned because they're not doing it all the time but mm. yeah it's still like getting still something to be aware of yeah definitely and if you take like several like long Whole flights a year, you know, like racking up when there's not a pandemic going on. When there's not a pandemic going on, Um, you know, you get much more exposure to radiation than if you say got an X-ray, which which is really something to think about. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, predicting space weather is something that's really important because the impacts could be very severe. Now there was what's called a coronal mass ejection, which is where the sun spits out like a huge amount of, of material mm-hmm. that, you know, contributes to the solar wind. And there was one in 2012 that was the biggest one recorded in history. Now, thankfully, this like ejection missed the earth. Oh, but thank goodness. if it had hit, it's estimated that the cost of damages to the US alone would be $2.6 trillion. Oh, my gosh. Like. I know. And, and and the main the main reason is because all of this energy would have, like, accumulated in things like power lines and caused massive power surges yeah. that would have caused, you know, power outages and just damage to equipment. And, you know, if the whole world basically had a power outage at once, mm. that would be quite bad. Yeah, a little bit. And there's there is a, a precedent for this. Another time in history where this like the Earth actually was hit by a, a coronal mass ejection, mm. and this was back in 1859. So technology wasn't quite where it is today. It wasn't anywhere near as damaging, but it did actually damage telegraph stations and disrupted communication right. through the telegraph system, and it caused the aurora to be so much more widely visible that that. Normally, we see aurora at the North and South Pole, mm. but because of this space weather event, you could see the aurora in the tropics, like close no. to the equator. Yes. What? <gasps> that's, that's how much energy. I mean, I like... want to say that that's really cool, but I feel like the net effect of that is probably not great. <laughs> is, that's, is... Mm, that's wild. I'll go with that. That's wild. Yeah, I know. Like, that is that is just insane to think about that mm. um apparently sometimes you can see the aurora from like southern australia just oh, really? depending on how intense it is and you know which part of the world it's in so mm. i've never seen it but if you, i think if you monitor the space weather on the bureau of meteorology website you can get predictions Ooh. for when aurora may be visible in australia i might um, have to start monitoring <laughs> this <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, we know that the space weather can be predicted and one of the ways they do that is they look at sunspots mm-hmm. and sunspots are, are sort of darker areas on the sun that when they ha- there's a lots of sunspots, this correlates with a higher level of solar activity and it turns out there is like an 11-year cycle of high and low intensity of these sunspots and solar activity and yeah, in case you're interested, we're currently in the minimum of that cycle Mm-hmm. So, you know, it goes up and down every 11 years. And, yeah, it turns out we're in the minimum. Huh, so interesting. There you go. So that means we're, we're less likely to get 
hit by less a... likely to get hit by a severe space weather event at the moment. But Nifty. they are a little bit unpredictable, I guess, mm-hmm. much like the normal weather. As yeah, well. yeah, true. Interesting. Well, that's really cool. That's really well, cool and scary, <laughs> but but also cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, I'm going to take us into our final song. Hope you guys have enjoyed listening. Remember, you can always follow us at Radio Silence on Twitter and find us on SoundCloud if you want to listen to this episode again. And our final song today is Hate Myself by Dodie.